Open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. There are handouts. Um, Doug, did you find those? Perfect. Half sheets. Yes, if you would, pass those. If you don't already have a handout, I don't think anybody has a handout, so let's uh, get those out. You guys want to help Mr. Doug there? And we will go to the book of Malachi. It is the last book in your Old Testament. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided in the seats, you will find the text on page 503, 503, all the way to the back of your Old Testament It is the last book in the Old Testament in biblical order. It is also chronologically the last uh, book that was written uh, in the Old Testament. We have been making our way through the Minor Prophets one by one, taking them about one a week. And uh, we've, we've taken a few excursions here and there uh, on others, but um, we're coming to the end of our series now, you may have, if you're paying very close attention, noticed that we missed a minor prophet, that we skipped over the book of Haggai. Now, you may ask, why is it that we skipped over the book of Haggai and are going to come back to it? And there's a very profound theological reason for us doing that. I messed up the schedule. <laughs> We had, we had done some rearranging, and I rearranged and missed a week, and so we, we just simply skipped over poor little old Haggai. Uh, but fear not, your, your notes will be complete. We will come back to it, but it will be out of order. So uh, we are now coming to the end, what should have been the end of our, our series in the Minor Prophets. We'll go back and get the one that we missed so that we have an even dozen uh, minor Prophets, including the book of Haggai. And then um, I'm going to start, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it right away through the last part of the summer or whether we're going to wait till the fall, but we're going to be starting a new series. Um, and of course, we, you know, we preach expositorily, we preach through texts of Scripture. This one will be organized a little bit differently in that I'm going to be preaching through texts from various books that all kind of relate to each other. All right, so I'm going to preach through kind of a category of texts, and all of those texts touch on a topic referred to often as Christian liberty. What is Christian liberty? How is Christian liberty handled differently in different contexts scripturally? And so hopefully that will be helpful for us as we make our way through several different texts in the New Testament. Um, that all deal with this topic of Christian liberty. So that's kind of the next thing, series-wise, that's coming down the pike. Um, but for this morning, we turn our attention to the book of Malachi. You have it open before you again if you're using one of the Black Bibles 503, and we'll be hitting highlights of this book as we make our way through this morning. Let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help. Lord, we are humbled before your word this morning recognizing that it is the word of the living God. We come to you humbled, we come to you eager to learn, and we pray that this morning in these moments that we have together, you would be pleased 
uh, with our hearts of worship that are given to you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, an Olympic qualifier made news and was inundated with criticism because she failed to appropriately honor the national anthem when it was played upon her uh, winning her sporting event. And of course, you know, what she did, why she did it, that's, that's kind of beside the point. But, but the criticism came because there's this expectation that honor be given to the national anthem, to the flag, to her, her home country that she represents. There are a lot of things in our society that we expect honor to be given. Now, if you've been around for any length of time, you've noticed that society has shifted much, but there are still things that we, we honor in our society. We do that with, with markers. If you go to a certain kind of event, a formal event, a wedding, a funeral, there's this, this expectation that you kind, of, you kind of look a certain way in order to honor the honored party, whether that's someone who has passed away, whether someone that's participating in a wedding. There are things that we do to honor others. We send birthday cards, and we send gifts, and we send Amazon gift cards electronically. Right? We, we do these things in order to honor other people. Honor is an important topic, even as we think scripturally. But we must consider the fact that true honor is not just, not just words. It's not just applause. It's not just, just merely giving uh, an accolade to someone. If we are truly to honor, it goes deeper than that. In respect to God, true honor is more than just giving lip service to who God is. It is really something that affects our actions our attitudes more than just praise that comes from our lips. So the real question for us this morning as we consider the book of Malachi is, how do you honor God? Do you honor Him merely by coming on Sunday and going through motions of worship? Or is your honor for God something that affects your whole life? The real question is, do you honor God not just Sunday, but what about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? How is God honored through the way that you live your life? The simple lesson that we learn from the prophet Malachi is that you and I are to honor God with all of our life. Honor God with all of your life. You have some information there uh, about the prophet. The prophecy was written probably after 516 B.C., we know a couple things that kind of historically frame the prophet Malachi. First of all, we know that, that temple worship was restored, and the way Malachi speaks about it, it had probably been restored for quite some time. So there had been a length of time that, that definitely lates, uh, dates it later, considerably later than, than 516 B.C. We also know that Malachi addresses some in fact, several of the same concerns, even in some ways similar language, to Nehemiah. 
And Nehemiah is one of those books that we can date with relative precision because of the historical surrounding context, right? So we think uh, scholars believe that Malachi was probably roughly a contemporary of Nehemiah. And if you know the study of the Nehemiah, that is a, a kind of a chronicling, a, a history of the rebuilding that was led there. So, of course, no surprise, the book is written by a prophet named Malachi, which means simply Yahweh's messenger, God's messenger. And these are indeed the message from God, in fact, the final message that God would give before the coming of Messiah, before the coming of Christ. Now, why is this all important? What is the kind of the historical context that we see here? Well, Malachi is ministering in Israel almost a hundred years after the temple had been rebuilt. The temple had been rebuilt, remember we talked about last week, under Zerubbabel, Zechariah, Haggai. Ezra had returned in 458 B.C. Nehemiah had come for the first time to rebuild the wall in 445 and then Nehemiah returned from Persia a second time to become the governor of Judah in 424. And so Nehemiah is, is, is leading in the same context where Malachi is ministering to people who, who re- worship had been restored for some time. In fact, for, for as many as 100 years, there was now temple worship again. There was now a sacrificial system. But as God's people were inclined to do, they drifted away from God. They hadn't actually returned to idolatry as they had in former days, but they didn't return to God either. They, they hadn't really committed to the true worship of Yahweh from the heart. They were growing complacent. This is kind of a cycle we see with Israel, isn't it? They, they repent, they turn back to God, they, they do well for a little while, and then they fall away from God again. And this is the context in which Malachi is ministering. And so we learn from it that we are to honor God with all of our lives. This is what Malachi is calling the people to do and what God calls us to do. In the first part of the book, there's actually six oracles Uh, The book can be divided up very neatly in kind of six messages from Malachi. The first is in the first part of chapter 1 where he calls on God's people and calls upon us to respond to God's love. At the heart of the Old Testament covenant is God's love. He had placed His love on His people. The most holy place in the temple sat this, this box called the Ark of what? The Ark of the Covenant, right? It it was a manifestation of the covenant, the relationship that God had established with His people. It was a symbol, a representation that God had set His love on these people. Right above the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. God's mercy had been manifested to them. And so so Malachi begins his discourse by reminding God's people of his love. Chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says Yahweh. 
says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? God's people are told of God's love. They, they see God's love around them, yet they brazenly challenge this statement that God loves them. They, they demand proof. How, how have you loved us? And so, even though he doesn't have to, God, through his prophet in verses 3 through 5, lovingly and patiently concedes to their demand, reminding him that he has chosen them, he has loved them, and he has rejected. The, the text uses the word hated, their brother Edom. Now, when you see these, these loved and hate, this is a, this is a common way of, of laying out a contrast, much like Jesus in the New Testament, right? refers to hating father and mother, right? He does not, he's not saying that in the sense we use the term that we are to hate our family. He's saying that by contrast, the, the, the love that is laid out by the prophet of God for his people is him choosing them, drawing them to himself, doing a special work in them. So, so he had demonstrated his sovereign love for them, yet when he had judged Edom, he had completely devastated Edom. It was completely and utterly destroyed, and God would never restore it. In fact, he pronounces a curse. This is what Malachi is explaining to us in the first part of chapter 1. A, a, a curse upon any attempt to rebuild Edom. God had permanently set his anger against Edom. This is verse 4. But he had not done that with Israel. They had been wicked. God had, in fact, punished them, but he chose to handle Israel differently. Their judgment was not extermination. He had torn down, but he would rebuild. In contrast to Edom, he had set his permanent love on Israel. Now, do you hear statements in our world today like, well, well, a loving God wouldn't judge in that way? Or, or how can God be loving and let this circumstance come to pass? When we say things like this, when we think things like this, when those around us articulate these sentiments, all of this reflects a profound lack of understanding, yea, even, even a presumption upon God's love that's expressed in his patience for us. We are all guilty of this. This very way of thinking that we're guilty of demonstrates a misunderstanding of how much mercy has been extended to us. And so, at the very beginning of this book, Malachi calls God's people, and we are called to recognize God's love for us in His mercy. The fact that we've not been destroyed, the fact that we've not been punished, the fact that we have been offered salvation in Christ is a profound manifestation of His love for us. And so because of that, we're called upon to worship Him authentically. The only appropriate response to love that is expressed like this, is to honor God. And so he talks to his people about what is a, an authentic relationship with God. They, they had a lot of the motions. They were doing a lot of the right things, but God desired more than that. 
He desired more than just declarations of love for him. He desired the appropriate honor that he was due. True honor is reflected in attitudes and actions, not just words. And so our life actually becomes an act of worship. Now, there's a a special sense in which when we gather together on Sunday morning, we are participating in corporate worship. That is, that is a time that is specifically set aside for our focus to be on, on God, for our mind, for our thoughts to be revolving around the things of God. But there is also a sense in which our entire lives are to be an act of worship. Our life is to reflect that same honor for God, and so, so while you may, you know, you go throughout the, the mundane of the day and you may not think, well, you know, eating this hamburger is a specific act of worship. There is a reality that, that the totality of our lives, everything we do, the priorities we set, the decisions that we make, the relationships that we honor are a reflection of giving glory to God. And so don't isolate off corporate worship. That's just kind of the capstone of what should be an entirety of life of worship. I wonder this morning, are you and I tempted to segregate our worship for God, our honor for God, to a a small little sphere of life? Do we think that that, that worship, that religion, that, that honor for God fits in this little box? It's one compartment, or is it something that permeates all of our life? Is, is quote-unquote, faith something that's important to you? Or is it really the foundation for all that you do? Is it really just about uh, some religious motions, some, some worshipful activity that you do? Or is your relationship with God that which encompasses all that you do? The problem that God's people had was they were doing some right motions. They were doing some things that they should have done, but their lives, their attitudes, their actions day in and day out did not reflect honor for God and worship for God. They claimed to honor Him, but they dishonor Him. And so in chapter 1, verse 7, God asks this penetrating question. You offer defiled food at my altar but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Excuse me, verse um, verse 6. A son honors his father, a servant honors his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, right? A a child honors their parent. A, a, A servant honors his or her master, You're claiming that you're my children, God says. You are claiming that you are my servant, yet where is the honor? So in verse 7, they respond, how have we dishonored you? These people claimed to honor God, but the reverence for God was absent. It was only lip service. When you looked at their lives, it was an empty claim. The words of honor were denounced by their works of dishonor. How was that the case? Well, in verses 8 and 9, he explains that there's no honor in their gifts. God, the prophet, in blistering terms, 
said, try taking these same gifts to your king and see what he says, to your princes and see what they say. Like you, you wouldn't present these gifts. They were, bl- they were bringing the, the stuff that they were going to throw out. They were, they were bringing the, the, the thing that would cost them the least to their sacrifice. In verses 10 and 12, it says there was no honor in their service. Verses 13 and 14, there's no honor in their relationships. Now that theme of relationships and honoring others is going to come up again here a little bit later in the text. But it was seen in the fact that they did not honor one another. So there are duties that God's people were called upon as part of their covenant relationship. Remember when we did a series on covenants, we said one of the few remaining covenants in our culture is the covenant of marriage. Marriage is a wonderful relationship. The reality is it comes with responsibilities associated with that relationship. And when we truly love our spouse, even those burdens are joyful because of the relationship. They don't cease to be burdens. They don't cease to be responsibilities, but they're not burdens in an oppressive sense. We, we love doing for, we love caring for, we love fulfilling the responsibility that is part of that relationship because we love that person. So too it is with God that when we truly love Him, the things that we do as part of, as part of responsibility are not oppressive. They're joy because they're an outgrowth of the relationship with one we love. They are, they're a result of an intimacy with God. So what were His people missing? They were misunderstanding who He was. He was a great king. Verse 14, in fact, even says he is to be feared among the nations. He's to be honored. And so we're reminded here that we are to worship authentically. Love for God is not just merely about religious symbols or formal worship. It is about a love for God, a relationship with him which flows right into the third sermon from, Haggai, uh, from Malachi, to love God completely. And so now God turns his attention to a specific message to the priests. He instructs them to love and to serve God wholeheartedly. They must begin to do the things that they were lacking And he explains this in the first part of chapter 2 and really strongly indicts the religious leaders of their day. In the next sermon in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, Malachi calls upon the people to loyalty. There's there's an opposite here. They are not, they're being disloyal, and he calls them to loyalty. Malachi's preaching demonstrates that there are some dramatic faults in the lives of the priests and in the lives of the people. They They lacked loyalty to God. They were being unfaithful. And so this is, again, a rehearsal of what we see so often with God's people again and again, being unfaithful, turning from Him. God has been faithful to them. He has poured out His love on them. And how have they returned it? With unfaithfulness. 
They've been unfaithful, we see here in this section, in three areas. They had been unfaithful to God and His covenant. They had been unfaithful to their obligations to remain a distinct and separate nation, not like the nations around them. And, interestingly, Malachi really keys on the fact that they had been unfaithful to their marriages. And perhaps more than any other book, perhaps more than any other passage, Malachi emphasizes that loyalty to God is, is seen in treating other people rightly. Malachi strongly deals with this issue of divorce in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And, and makes a strong indictment against God's people for their participation in divorce. Now, the whole question of divorce, remarriage, is a complicated one and could take up an entire sermon series as we survey all of the biblical uh, information on divorce and remarriage. But, but it is very clear from this short little passage that God does not like divorce. God hates divorce. It, it is inconsistent with the design that he has made for marriage. Now, that is not to say that God hates those who are divorced. It is to say that it breaks the heart of God. To see that, that bond that is intended by God, that is designed by God to be for a lifetime, to see that bond broken. And the prophet Malachi really goes after God's people for the flippant way in which they were treating their marriages in that culture. In that society, they were discarding their marriages. They were participating in divorce. And that was indicative of the larger problem that they were not honoring their covenant with God. It was being seen in their covenants with one another. Just before that, it says Judah has dealt, in in verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously, treacherously, an abomination has been committed in Israel and Judah. Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loved. He's married the daughter of a foreign god. So they're being like the nations. They're intermarrying with the other nations. They're not keeping the covenants that they had committed themselves to. And so they needed to begin once again believing in who God was and conducting themselves appropriately. We see in the next section a call to trust in God. In the previous section of the book, Malachi speaks to the people becoming weary of God, weary of the requirements of worship, asking themselves, is this, is this something that we really, is it really worth it to serve God? And now, God declares that he's becoming weary of his people. Verse 17, chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what ways have we wearied him? Everyone who does evil is, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? They're calling good evil and evil good. And they're saying, well, I don't know that God notices that God cares. And so in the final section of the book, he calls them to reflect, to to really think about their ways. We see a call to serious reflection. God speaks once again to his people in this last sermon from Malachi. He accuses them of being harsh in their words against him. He answers their objections. He reminds them who he is. 
And then God calls on this nation, the nation that has been questioning him, to evaluate whether the charges that they're making against him is true. They've, they've accused him. Are those, true, are those true? Are they consistent with his nature their, and his character? Chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve the Lord. Now remember, they may not have said it out loud, but that's what their actions were showing. That's what they were demonstrating. In verse 15, they were calling the proud blessed. Now in verse 16, he also sets up a contrast. Malachi presents two distinct groups of people in Israel. There were those that concluded that it was useless to serve God. They spoke against God, verses 13 through 15. But there were also those, verse 16, who feared the Lord and spoke to one another accordingly. You know, there's times that we all doubt God. I mean, if we're honest, we know that those, those doubts crop up. And those doubts should be answered by Scripture. When we question when we, when we wonder, just like God's people. But a life that is persistently permeated with doubting God is a life that is not worshiping God. It's normal, it's natural. I mean, the scripture actually records, right? Job, Haggai, many places in the Psalms where, where God's people question if they always come back to the character of God, a person who is fixed on God, who is worshiping God with all his life, will come full circle and recognize who God is, the God who loves him. And so he concludes in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, Remember the law of Moses, which I commanded him, the statutes, the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful, dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The Old Testament ends with the word curse. But just before that, we see the glimpse of hope, don't we? This one who will come in the form of, in the, in, the, in the line of Elijah the prophet, who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. He will, he will cause God's people to look back to the fathers who worshiped God and reunite God with his people. And of course, we know ultimately that is the work of Christ. That is the, the glimpse down the corridor that will, will come just about 400 years after Malachi. The, the one who will come, who will reunite God with his people and his people with God, who will turn their hearts towards him. And of course, we have but a foretaste of that work in the work of Christ, who extended salvation not only just to his own people Israel, but to all of us as Gentiles. This one who provided for our sin on the cross. This hints at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who came, lived a perfect life and died, not for His own sin, but for your sin and mine. 
My friend, if there's never been a time where you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone, that is to say you have repented of your sin, you've turned from your own way and depended on Jesus Christ alone, today can be the day that you know forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ who is foretold by the prophets. You see, their ultimate hope was not just in reforming themselves. It wasn't even merely in repentance, although repentance is necessary. Their ultimate hope was in the one who would come and restore his people, Christ himself. And so, not only did God leave us a word, he promised to send his messenger to guide in the way of truth. Now, we see several fulfillments along the way. We see, right, John the Baptist who really is the fulfillment of this prophecy of the one who would come in the, in the form of Elijah. He turned the heart of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. They would worship the God of their ancestors, but in a more general sense, there's a messenger that God has sent to turn all of our hearts to him. And so as we are drawn to him, as we are drawn to the gospel and drawn to Christ, we see fulfillment. Now, this morning, as you and I meditate on the Word of God, we live under the direction of the Spirit. We, too, can avoid this curse that is spoken of in Malachi. The last word from God to His people in the Old Testament. Many of the promises that we've considered in these prophets have have yet to be fulfilled. Many of the ceremonies remain unexplained until Christ comes and restores His people to Himself. We may not totally be able to understand, to explain, but we've always seen God's love. We must never doubt it. We must always rejoice in it. And because of God's love, as Malachi reminds His people, we are to honor God. We are to worship Him, not just with words of service, but with a life that is given to Him. Honor God with all of your life. Father, we thank you for the moments that we've had together in your word, for the consideration that we've seen here from your prophet Malachi. We pray that even as we consider not just this prophet, but all the prophets that we've seen, may we be reminded of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ if we but turn to him and depend on him. I want to give you a moment to